Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. This week's guest is a very special person, Joe Sandberg. He is a progressive entrepreneur who is working to end poverty, basically working through the public and private sectors to make people's lives better. We talk about his story, why he is so passionate about the work he does, and so much more. My name is Joe Sandberg. My mom raised me by herself. I grew up in poverty and we lost our home to foreclosure when I was a teenager. And I think that our governing agenda as a nation ought to be to end poverty, no matter who we piss off. Sorry, not sorry. There are literally 120 million people who are working, and in many cases working multiple jobs, who don't earn the wages that are sufficient to make ends meet. And so what we have to do is figure out how to make work pay better. I believe to my core, at a cellular level, that if you work, you should enjoy full financial security in California. We talk a lot about freedom as a society. But I'd ask you this, if you're a person who literally couldn't weather a $700 surprise expense, which means you're a broken wrist, a couple of blown tires, a busted pipe away from financial crisis, what kind of freedom do you actually have? Consider all the things in culture right now that do what I call thingify people, right? We reduce people to these very, very simple elements and overlook all Like what? Like, give me as an example. Like, if we were to thingify me, how would we do that? Well, I mean, you know, be blunt, we get thingified all the time on social media that you're, you know, this white female feminist uh, activist actress on Twitter, and that's who you are. So that's thingifying that's me. Your, that thingifies you. Yeah. That I'm this like rich white male progressive activist donor that thingifies me. Both of those relegate us to something that's frankly subhuman and misses all of the texture of our experiences, all of the suffering. Nuance. N- no nuance, None. right? None. No nuance. Over- but this is the time that we live in right now that is completely and totally void of nuance. Correct. The gray areas in life to me, are where we do the most, not only self-exploration, but also find common ground. Correct. Right? Correct. So if we're living in a society that doesn't pay attention to nuance and everyone's individual um, story and uh, imperfections and um, understand what got us to this point right now, not only as human beings, but as cultural you know, a a country, a cultural country, how are we supposed to evolve? Correct. And if you're thingified and reduced to something that's less than human, then you're going to seek out other forms of identity. And we all then become balkanized into groups instead of anything that's cohesive as a society. So, and then consider thingification, right? In my case, I grew up in poverty, you know, um, I'm only 39, so those experiences are not distant. All right. my extended family is working class, you know, lower middle class. And so, so many of the assumptions that are projected on me by how I appear 
are so disconnected with mm. actually how I understand and experience the world and actually how many things I truly have in common with a lot of other people who might look different than me and live differently than I do right now. But inside my heart, we have these common sensibilities. Mm. Consider also the assumptions people make about you. And then consider the actual experiences you've had, the turmoil you've overcome, and how that turmoil puts you into solidarity with a lot of other people who may at the surface appear very different than you. And yeah, we, I think people in my industry are often you know, made to believe that we shouldn't have a political voice because we're the elite. Because your thing, though, also. That's thingification. Right, exactly. This is what I'm saying. And because we are considered the elite, which drives me nuts because I don't. there are very few actors that have come from wealth. Usually the artists of the world has, have had to struggle and are more American because we actually live all over the country and have these experiences that are very localized, that are very specific to that community and that cultural place. And yet we're made to feel like we're irrelevant because there's no way we can understand the plight of a quote unquote normal American. Correct. So what, how do we get back to a place where people are respected for their individuality and their past experiences? It's really hard. And the answer isn't just in politics. In fact, I think part of where we're falling short is that, well, we have to do a lot in political activism, obviously, and it's critically important. We elect different kinds of leaders to office. I think politics is just a byproduct of culture. And all of the problems we see in our politics right now are not solely solved by just electing different people. They're only solved thoroughly by changing our culture. And one of the reasons why I've chosen not at least so far to run for office is I think we have a lot of great people who are running for office, but we don't have many people who are focusing on changing the culture and industries. So professionally, I'm really focused on the financial industry and have been building a different kind of financial company that gives people banking accounts that show you how the way you spend your money treat workers in the environment, right? And at different points, I've thought about running for office, but I've continued to stay focused on this because we could elect the most progressive, authentic, committed people to every single office in the land. But if the financial industry is still operating in a regressive way, right. it'll always be one and a half steps forward, two steps back, right? So if we don't fix these harder, ongoing problems that lead to political outcomes, then we won't actually solve the problems. Um, and so that's just one example. But the inconvenient reality is that electing different people to office is the simple way of doing it, right? It's the alluring, well, if we elect a new president and a new Congress, then everything's fixed. But I think the uncomfortable truth is it's going to take decades to fix this because we have to change the culture. The thing that I, I find that is so unnerving is this the way in which the, the Republican Party has hijacked Jesus and God, right? Which obviously has no place in governing. However, I do think heart and soul has a place in governing. And I feel as though politics and politicians in general have become so immune to this idea of soulful growth and doing the right thing, not because it's the political move, but doing the right thing because ultimately shouldn't we all be humanitarians? Well, there's a 
criticism of Democrats that's become more intense over the last decade that Democrats have become the party of elites. There's a lot of elitism in the dialogue about our primary process. When do you right think now. that started? Kennedy's? The Kennedy family? I think it started around the post Watergate era is my theory. Um, there's some really interesting history around how went, how the, um, around that time the De- Democrats started to abandon their populist spirit. You know, up until the post-Watergate congressional class, Democrats were really fastidious about fighting monopoly power, right? And um, since that time, Democrats have been really light on monopoly power, which is essentially another form of abuse, Right. I think monopoly power is, is really actually an extension or a cousin of the same abuse of power that men in power project onto women. You know, I've wondered, too, actually, if in the Me Too moment, that can be a time to reexamine all of the ways that power is abused in our culture and our, in our economy. That monopolies are an example of Me Too economically, right? Because they take their power, they abuse people, they limit their choice, they limit their freedom. Um, so returning back to this question of when we abandoned our populist spirit, it was around the 70s when Democrats stopped being for the little person and started being for, you know, the big companies and um, academic elites. Yeah, yeah. And both parties are for the lobbyists. But we know the Republican Party is going to be for the lobbyists, right? That's the right of center party. It's going to be that way. If the left of center party is also that way, then who's for the little person? Right. And I think you can see – light of this also when you consider how we talk about people in the Midwest, right? Or people who aren't on the quote unquote coasts, we reduce them into these things instead of recognizing that actually most people in the Midwest or even in California or New York don't think about the language of activism or politics. Most people think about how they're going to buy food and clothing and pay rent and how they can earn more for their work. And we project this elitism on the people that well, how come they're not paying attention to this little inside baseball thing? And that's a luxury of being part of the two out of 10 Americans who don't live paycheck to paycheck. But if you're part of the eight out of 10 Americans who do live paycheck to paycheck, then the cacophony in DC doesn't even register in your life because every day you're confronted by this jackhammer sound of how you're going to pay your bills and support your kids, right? Exactly right. And actually, I think it's an interesting framework for how we can understand which politicians resonate with which people. If you're part of the two out of 10 who doesn't live paycheck to paycheck, the country's working reasonably well for you. The main nuisance is that you have this backdrop in politics that's um, filled with discord. And so you're really passionate about resolving that discord. You want people to be civil and get along. But if you're part of that eight out of 10, that incivility doesn't even register for you. I think also if you look at how the we're polling with Russia and impeachment, I think we are ignoring the really important lesson there, which is people don't fucking care about Russia. <laughs> they care about paycheck to paycheck. Correct. Now, if you then break it down to how this administration has completely affected our democracy and you get a little bit more in depth as to we are setting a dangerous precedent here. Um, they become a little bit more interested, but still, these are not the issues that people care about. This is why, oh. when you look at my Twitter stream, you very rarely see me tweeting about Russia or impeachment yeah. because I just 
I would rather focus on the human element of what's happening right now. Well, the fact that most people don't care about Russia isn't a criticism of most people. It's a criticism of the system that elites have allowed to persist that relegates people into this daily existence where they're living paycheck to paycheck, right? Because worrying about questions like our democracy, our luxuries, that people enjoy when they don't have to worry about living paycheck to paycheck. And if you if you consider the pattern of the rise of authoritarianism throughout the, the world, truth. right? It's always a pattern of putting people in places in their lives where they don't even have time to think about democratic principles. And so you distract them. And then while they're distracted, a small number of oligarchs or authoritarians take power. Well, isn't that kind of what's happening is we've put most Americans into a place where they don't have the luxury of time to pay attention to our democracy. And while they're not paying attention, you have a small number of people who are robbing them of their economic and political freedom. So unless we get at the root experiences people are having every day, we can't put them again in the luxury to participate in our democracy. Once you controlled for the opinions of affluent Americans and interest groups and other lobbying organizations, average people, their voice was not heard at all. Or at the very least, their voice didn't appear to matter at all. Uh, now it's just an oligarchy with, a, with unlimited political bribery being the essence of getting the nominations for, pres- for president or the elected president. And the same thing applies to governors and U.S. senators and, and Congress members. So now we've just seen a complete subversion of our political system uh, as a payoff to major contributors who want and expect and sometimes get uh, favors for themselves after the election's over. Men and women who put their lives on the line to defend this country fought to preserve American democracy, not create an oligarchy. Tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and your childhood and why you are right here where you are now. Well, because of my mom, um, who I am is, is really um, a reflection on who my mom is. My mom raised me and my brother by herself. Um, you know, I didn't realize how hard our economic circumstances were when I was growing up in it because my mom worked so hard to shield me and my brother from that, which is in part virtuous, but also in part a reflection of the social pressure she felt and the, I think, stigma that she faced by uh, or around communicating to people just how much hurt she was under. So when I was in high school, um, we lost our home to foreclosure and um, moved into my grandma's house at the time. And that's, I think, when I really started to realize how severe the economic pressures on my mom were growing up. And what year was this? I was 1997. Okay. And I was living for college around that time. So I was able to get into Harvard, um, partly through hard work, partly through luck, um, partly through being good at taking, you know, tests where you fill in the bubbles. And when I got there, it was such a weird experience because I felt like I had to really hide the economic background I was from. You know, you go to Harvard and then you're... Shame? Definitely. Yeah. A sense of shame, a sense of being the other. Um, you know, you're surrounded by classmates, not who are wealthy in the in the sense that I experienced where, you know, I had friends in high school, maybe they went on vacations, right? Here at Harvard, wealth is people whose great, 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 great grandparents were really wealthy. And 
I grew up in Orange County. People who know Orange County know that it's quite economically diverse. There are the parts of Orange County you see on TV in the OC, and then there are the parts of Orange County where people are living paycheck to paycheck. But if you're from the East Coast, you all think Orange County is like what you see on TV. Right. So people would say, oh, you're from Orange County, like the television show. And I wouldn't correct them because I didn't want to deal with explaining to them what my growing up was like. And frankly, at that very time in college, my mom was dealing with having lost her home and how she's going to pay her bills. And I was working several jobs to supplement the loans I took out to go to college and then send money home to my mom. And so my college experience was in a sense, and I, I, I'm careful in making this analogy because it's not the equivalence of what someone experiences when they're in the closet. But I think just a little fraction I understood it because I felt like I had to keep in the closet my economic experiences that were occurring right there and then. I was an activist in college and I was really involved with justice for janitors at the time I was at Harvard. And, you know, I led college Democrats and was really passionate about doing good. When I was graduating, I wanted to provide financial security for my mom. And I hadn't studied anything about business. I was focused on politics and government in college. So I went to the career services office and applied for a job at a fancy Wall Street firm called Blackstone. Now, I didn't know about Blackstone, and I didn't know that you're supposed to have all these internships. Literally, I just saw the salary, which was $55,000, which is a lot now, and it was a lot, a lot in 2001. So I went down to New York, and I made the case that my experience as a community organizer in college was leverageable to doing private equity investing. Um, And so maybe out of a sense of humor, they gave me that job. (laughs) So, and I had no idea what I was doing, like less than no idea. I remember in the first months I was on that job, I'd be walking around Manhattan um, on the phone with my mom and saying, you know, mom, I don't know what I'm doing. And of course, my my mom mom gives me a pep talk. No, you can do it. And I would respond, mom, I I love you. I know you're saying that out of love. I literally don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) I really have no idea (laughs) what's happening. I have this assignment due at 7 a.m. I don't know how to do it. That's amazing. So I spent the first seven years of my career working at Blackstone. and then this, You were there for seven years? Well, two at Blackstone and then five years at another financial firm called Tiger. Mm-hmm. So pretty similar places. And when I was 29... That's a long time to fake it. Yeah. And, and it took a toll on my soul. I'm and sure. And who I was and how I treated people. In that later part of my 20s, I was an asshole. Um, when I was visiting my brother and my mom... In 2009, early in 2009, my brother took me out to lunch and he said that my 18-year-old self would not like my 29-year-old self. And he said it in a way that just grabbed me. Wow. That was about 10 years ago. And that sparked me to leave behind that early part of my career and move back to California. So for the last 10 years, my North Star has been always be someone my 18-year-old self would like. Because I was like, I was a pretty neat guy at 18. Um, and um, I think my 18-year-old self would like who I am today. I love that. Thanks. That's that's really awesome. Thanks. So you went to Harvard. Yeah. Did you accumulate some student loan debt? Oh, heck yeah. Tell me I a little th- bit about that. I think I graduated with, I want to say, sixty dollars or $70,000 of student loan debt. So I paid for college through a combination of debt grants that the school gave you for coming from a low-income family and then working extra jobs. Yeah. 
You probably know this by now, but I love The New Yorker. It holds people in power accountable through compelling storytelling and rigorous reporting. From politics and international affairs to arts, fiction, and their amazing cartoons, The New Yorker covers such a diverse range of topics. When I have a free moment, I love to sit down and read pieces from their talented writers like Evan Osnos, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and Doreen St. Felix, who covers the highs and lows of today's culture. So, I'm very excited to tell you that The New Yorker is giving my listeners a special offer. You can get 12 weeks for just $6 plus the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. This gives you unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day and home delivery of the print edition each week. All you have to do is go to newyorker.com slash sorry to save 50%. Again, that's newyorker.com slash sorry. Okay, okay, okay. We have a new sponsor, and I'm so very excited to tell you about them. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering creative and entrepreneurial skills. They offer classes in graphic design, web development, photography, and so many other cool things. Learning is so very important at every age, and as I get older, I realize there are so many things I still want to dive into. So you don't need to be in school to learn new skills, and taking classes online makes it so easy. So if you are curious and want to learn more, Skillshare has a special offer just for you. Two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Sorry Not Sorry listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash sorry. That's Skillshare.com slash sorry to start your two months now. Skillshare.com slash sorry. Since 1981, the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty on less than $1.90 per day has fallen from 42% to 10%. But in countries with advanced economies, inequality of income and wealth has surged. And nowhere has it surged more than in the U.S., where reliance on free market forces has been strongest. That magnifies rewards for those at the top and leaves most others behind. The trend helps those with higher levels of education and hurts the less educated. It lifts residents of major cities while leaving those in small towns behind. The problem today is that uh, inequality is at its highest that has been probably ever. And we have the greatest inequality in the developed world and the greatest in immobility of our society. And people don't understand in America the depth of the problem. It's about people, it's about society, it's about lack of jobs, lack of education. It's a problem where 60% of all American homes have to borrow money at the end of the first, at the end of each month. So I have so many questions, but I think this um, the thing that keeps me up at night and we talk about it a lot on the podcast is income inequality and how we fix that how we bridge that divide and i'd love the to hear your thoughts genesis on that. of income inequality is the power structure in our economy 
the way we've been trying to treat income inequality for the last 20, 30 years is by putting Band-Aids on the wound after the wound's been struck. Instead of going at the core of asking, why is it that our economy generates mostly low-wage jobs and, and in fact, increasingly just generates low-wage jobs? And the answer is we have a power imbalance in the economy that is exaggerated by rules that allow a small number of big companies and really, really, really wealthy families who hire lobbyists to accumulate more and more and more and more. That for almost everyone, there's one set of rules. And then for a tiny number of people with lobbyists, there's a different set of rules. And in fact, most of the time, all the rest of us don't even know about these different rules. I think one of the most American notions is that everyone should play by the same rules without regard to any exceptions. No matter who you are, um, your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion, your race, your age, how much money you have, everyone plays by the same rules. Well, economically, it works in the following way. Presently, we have an economy where if you're a really, really large company, you can hire lobbyists that shape the rules to advantage your own company and maybe a few other companies that are really big. And then all of these medium-sized and small companies, which are the kinds of companies that hire most number of people, um, are disadvantaged by those rules. More specifically, um, we have rules that protect existing companies instead of protecting consumers. Take the financial industry, for example. The financial industry has a lot of regulations. It should. We need to regulate companies to ensure consumers are protected. But a lot of the regulations exist to protect existing companies and make it hard for new companies to enter the industry. Those aren't regulations that help consumers. Those are regulations that make it really hard for small and medium-sized businesses to grow and hire more people. And so that's really a specific example. And I bet in other industries, there's other examples too. Yeah. Where, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of clean water. Correct. Where you Correct. know it should be about well, the people the and really it's about corporations. For example, a lot of regulations exist to protect the pharmaceutical companies instead of to help sick patients. Right? Think about all the people who miss out on experimental treatments. You hear about this oftentimes where there's these experimental treatments that exist in other countries but not in the United States. I mean, part of that is because lobbyists create our regulations to protect the pharmaceutical companies instead of protecting consumers. And then those standards apply culturally, right? I mean, why is it for decades that, you know, men were protected from the sexual assault that they would commit against their employees? Because they would be setting the rules. And those rules even would be preferential to upper income men, right? So if you're an upper income male who owned a company, you'd be able to get away with sexual assault. And if you were a lower income um, male, um, you could actually not even done anything and say you're a lower income person of color, right? Then you could be, you know, ensnared in the disadvantages in our system that hurt people of color and low income people in particular. You look at the criminal justice system as a huge case in point. Um, I mean, if you're an upper income person, I think both male and female, if you're an upper income white person, the criminal justice system works really well for you. Mm -hmm. And if you're a lower income person, you go to jail before Mm -hmm. you even tried. Right. And that's also true for yeah. pretty much every, every industry, right? In, environmental issues, race plays a huge part on the health and welfare of, of people throughout their entire 
lives. They're more likely to, to have more pollution, live in more polluted areas, have contaminated yes. water. I mean, it's it's really sick. Yes. And it when I think about the the bigness of it all, I feel overwhelmed. And like there yes. is no way that we're ever going to fix what's broken. Yes. What when I say the word socialist, how, what do you? I have a neutral feeling feel about that word. You know, I think it means different things to different people. I think the way it's currently being used in the present political right. environment is to describe something that actually is FDR democracy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that we've weaponized that word. And I think that there is, there are obviously certain programs that are already in place that have a socialistic background that seem to be very effective for people. It's so interesting to me how, and I guess it goes back to what we were talking about before, how different words mean different things to different people, depending on their ideology, their religious background, where they come from. And that's where we get into that that nuance, I think, that is so important, that seems to be just gone. Um, These questions of words, though, I think, connect into the previous thread we were unpacking around elitism. To most Americans, socialist, capitalist, it's all, it's all irrelevant. They want to know whether um, working one job and playing by the rules is going to be enough to support their family and their kids. And you can call it... And it's not anymore. That's not enough anymore. It's totally not. It's not enough anymore. It's totally not. But we engage in these debates around, well, socialism, capitalism. And then to almost every American, they're like, call it it like sushi, hamburger, (laughs) whatever. It doesn't matter. Like most Americans want to know that if they work a job and play by the rules, then they're going to be okay. Um, And then we get bogged down into what we call it, right? So... These debates are artificial and, and frankly, elitist. And that's what got us into trouble. Correct. Let's, let's talk about the question of poverty and how we use the word poverty. For the last four years, I've been really focused in my volunteer life on fighting poverty. And people have told me not to use the word poverty because they say, well, people don't like to be told they're poor. And that's certainly been the prevailing thought in politics, that we call everyone middle class, right? And we only call people who are poor, perhaps the very, very, very most poor. And I found actually the opposite. When you tell someone who's living paycheck to paycheck that they're middle class, that's not honoring them. That's insulting them because there's nothing about middle class that is paycheck to paycheck. When someone is waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, wondering how she's going to take her kid to the doctor, and you call her middle class, you're not dignifying her, you're demeaning her. And when we describe poverty as not just those who are earning below the statistical poverty line, which is frankly another form of thingification, right? When did poverty and its definition become the domain of statisticians as opposed to how people are living, right? And when, when we redefine it so that we all understand poverty is those who are living paycheck to paycheck. And that means eight out of 10 Americans. And then when you talk about- Say that again. Well, I think poverty should be defined by the human experience, not by statisticians. And I think if you're living paycheck to paycheck, which means that if something goes wrong in life, you're screwed. And you know inside that life means things go wrong. 
And therefore, if you can't handle something going wrong, you're living in a state of knowing you're going to get messed over. It's just a matter of time, right? That's poverty. Well, if almost eight out of 10 Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, meaning they're living a daily life knowing that when life happens, which, you know, the proverbial word shit happens, right? That you're not going to be able to handle it. That's not middle class. That's living in a state both of economic and of spiritual poverty because having that anxiety on your shoulders every hour of every day robs you of your ability to be fully human. Half of the American people are living paycheck to paycheck. Far too many hardworking Americans are falling behind, living paycheck to paycheck most without labor unions to protect them from even worse harm. The trend is continuing, and we expect it to continue going forward. Too many people are in debt, and as they approach that retirement age, they're not going to be ready to um, support themselves um, and be able to retire. 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, half can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. And so if you say, hey, do something for those people, what's the human response? You know it. They say, like, wait, if they're getting theirs, then that's somehow bad for me. And then if you demonize them, then I'm on board. That is a mindset of scarcity in action. I'm not the homeless man down on the corner begging for change. I'm anybody living anywhere USA. So speaking of taxes, you're an advocate for the earned income tax credit. Tell me what that is. Sure. So the earned income tax credit is a wage subsidy on one's tax returns if you earn a low income. So think about it like a negative income tax rate. Imagine you earn $24,000 a year and you don't owe any taxes. With the earned income tax credit, you'd end up getting a couple thousand dollars of cash back from the government, even though you didn't owe taxes in the first place. That's what the earned income tax credit is. So it literally makes your work pay better. Now you have to earn wages to get the earned income tax credit. And um, when you earn those wages, your wages, if you will, are subsidized by this earned income tax credit. You file your tax return, and depending on how much you've earned and how many kids you have, will um, inform how much you get back. And it's calculated without regard to whether you owe taxes. And so that's the sense in which it operates as this negative income tax rate. The reason I became passionate about it is, first, I remember my mom getting the federal earned income tax credit when we were growing up. And in the springtime, when she'd get her earned income tax credit, she'd use it to catch up on bills and fix the car and things of that nature. And about four years ago, I realized that California was one of the states that didn't have a state version of the earned income tax credit. So this earned income tax credit, EITC for short, it exists on your federal tax returns and in some places for your state tax return. I was surprised that California didn't have one because you think of California as this very progressive place. And the reality is California is socially progressive, but economically, this state is really hard for people who are anything other than rich. Mm. Really hard. So I hadn't done much in politics since college. And um, I thought, well, if you want to get the law changed, um, you hire lobbyists. So in 2015, I hired lobbyists that usually work for big corporations and asked them to work for poor people. And I paid them a corporate rate, right? And lo and behold, um, the tactics that they use effectively for corporations also worked effectively for poor people. What are those tactics? Oh, you know, twist arms and horse horse trading and whatnot, right? And I think this speaks to the necessity that we use the levers of power for the people who have no voice, 
right? If tobacco and big oil are going to use lobbyists, then we need to hire our own lobbyists to fight for poor people. And it worked. We got the state to create an earned income tax credit in 2015. But the bittersweet element was there weren't any outreach monies. Now, one might ask, well, why do you need outreach money to get a policy to work? The reason is you only get the earned income tax credit if you file a tax return. So as you imagine the millions of Californians who don't owe taxes, they don't think to file tax returns. Every year in California, um, about $2 billion of earned income tax credits from the federal government are left unclaimed because people who don't owe any taxes don't file tax returns. Right? Imagine what those $2 billion could do for so many single moms wow. who literally would use those monies to provide three instead of two meals a day for their kids. So the stakes are really high. So when the state didn't put up any outreach funds, um, I thought, well, I have to take matters into my own hands. So I started a nonprofit that organized a coalition of foundations and philanthropists to conduct community organizing around the state with the clear objective of make sure everyone who's eligible for these couple thousand dollars of EITC gets their taxes done for free and gets it. So um, in 2016 and then in 2017, each year we served about 400,000 low-income Californians. Now, to really visualize the nature of poverty in California, we serve 400,000 Californians with kids who earn less than $15,000 a year. Because in the first two years of the EITC, you had to earn less than $15,000 to get it. Now, I can't imagine how you even raise kids with $15,000 of income. And yet there were 400,000 households that we served in 2016 and 2017. And one of the most heartbreaking parts of that experience was when we would have these really big tax preparation fairs, right? In communities and we'd have thousands of people come to get their taxes done. People would come who were earning $18,000 and we'd have to turn them away because they earned above the income eligibility that the state had set. And um, it just continues, continues, continues to break my heart as I think about it. So we did something about it. In 2017, we organized... Um, people that we had served with free tax prep during the year, low-income people. And we, um, we got them to call Sacramento. We got 50,000 very low-income Californians to call their state reps and state senators and demand an EITC expansion. We sent 1 million text messages to low-income Californians with um, a link that they could click to call their representative and a message of, will you help your neighbor or family member what, get what we helped you get? And 50,000 low-income Californians called, and lo and behold, the state tripled the size of the EITC. And that was so fun. We did it again in 2018. You must be so proud. It was the most meaningful experience I can only imagine. And your mom must be so proud. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, it was so much fun winning. What's more fun than winning for poor people? We did it again in 2018. And then we got the state to double it after having tripled it in 2017. Oh, I'm very excited to tell you about Four Sigmatic because I've started incorporating their drinks into my daily routine and I feel so much better. Four Sigmatic is a natural superfood company that specializes in mushroom-based drinks that benefit our immunity, energy, and longevity and help us live 
healthier lives. They make a wide variety of blends, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, matcha, superfood blends, and more. Why mushrooms? Well, Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee with lion's mane promotes productivity, focus, and creativity. And the best part is that it's coffee without the jitters. Lion's mane mushrooms have long been used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation. And to clarify, it tastes just like coffee, not mushrooms. They are offering my listeners 15% off. All you have to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash sorry. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash sorry for 15% off. Did you know that you spend one third of your life in sheets? That's a lot of time, so you should be comfortable. When you sleep, you should sleep well on hotel-quality sheets that don't cost hotel prices. Brooke Linen was named the winner of the best online bedding category by Good Housekeeping and has more than 35,000 five-star reviews. Whoa. The company was founded in early 2014 by a husband and wife who wanted to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. Brooklinen offers luxury sheets, towels, bedding, and more without the luxury markup. Did you know that most bedding is marked up as much as 300%? So I started using Brooklinen sheets. They are so comfortable And their towels are so ridiculously soft. And the best part, they're giving an exclusive offer to my listeners. Get 10% off and free shipping when you use the code Alyssa at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get 10% off and free shipping is to use promo code Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code Alyssa. They really are the best sheets ever. If you, if you, if you were running the country right, right now, what is the first thing that you would do? Well, if I were running the country, my governing agenda would be to end poverty, that my entire presidency would be harnessed around the single goal of end poverty in America, which means making wages livable, making the things people have to buy every single day affordable, and eliminating the structural racism and misogyny that contributes to an economy that produces basically low-wage jobs, especially for women and people of color. That would be the governing agenda, but I hope any of the Democratic candidates will embrace that governing agenda. One of the things that worries me is that in the Democratic debates a couple of weeks ago, the word poverty was only mentioned three times. I don't think it's controversial that the That's next Democrat— four hours. Right. Four hours of debates. Correct. 20 candidates. Correct. Three mentions of the word poverty. And— I don't think it's controversial that the next Democratic president ought to have a governing agenda of ending poverty. Redefining poverty so that people understand that this isn't something that speaks to a small number of people. This is something that speaks to the almost 8 out of 10 Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. And that if you're among those 8 out of 10 Americans, our governing agenda to end poverty is your agenda. Imagine the kind of civic energy that that would awaken. 
Imagine the ability to narrate that as something that cuts across all injustices, right? Because you can't end poverty without ending racism and misogyny. And you also can't end poverty without growing the economy. And the fastest, best way we can grow the economy is a Green New Deal. And so the virtuous irony is that the best way to end poverty is also the best way to save the planet. And I think we can only save the planet if we end poverty. They're interlinked. So the agenda to end poverty can also be the agenda to save the planet. Rocket fuel the economic growth through a Green New Deal and industrial investing so that we have lots of Green New Jobs. I mean, if we did the Green New Deal right, the question of immigration would become resolved because we'd need to beg people to come into the country. We'd have so many jobs we couldn't fill. I think that ought to be our agenda, and I don't think it's that complicated, and you don't need more than 60 or 90 seconds to explain it. Instead, we spent four hours of these debates talking about things that don't really resonate with most people's daily lives. The Green New Deal resolution aims to reach net zero human-caused global emissions by 2050. To reach that, a UN climate panel report found that emissions would need to fall by about 45% from 2010 levels by 2030. The 14-page plan focuses on sustainable farming practices, more training for clean energy sector jobs, cleaner transportation systems such as high-speed rail, and technology that will reduce humans' carbon footprint. Many 2020 Democratic candidates endorsed the proposal. But it also has its fair share of critics. There isn't a single serious idea here. Not one. Senate Republicans have called the measure expensive and impossible to afford. They're trying to say that the Green New Deal is about what we have to give up, what we have to cut back on. When in fact, uh, the Green New Deal itself is a resolution to be more expansive. It is to be able to generate more and to make sure that we're investing in working class, uh, in working class Americans. If we're going to make progress, we need to declare our North Star. And our North Star is 100% renewable energy. It's Medicare for all. It's tuition for public colleges. It's investing in technology and, and renewable, uh, renew, renewable resources and electric vehicles. Our economy grows the fastest when we're all focused on fixing a big problem, creating businesses that fix that problem, investing in companies that fix that problem, and hiring people to fix that problem. And so if we agreed both as government and private sector, that the big problem we have to fix is make our economy carbon neutral. Then we will create businesses that develop carbon neutral technologies. We will hire people to do jobs that move industries away from carbon consumption towards carbon neutrality. Right? And so I think about it as a big goal, making our economy carbon neutral and creating businesses, making investments and hiring people to accomplish that goal. Then you move into all of the different steps that you take to accomplish that goal. That was great. That was much better. I think, <laughs> I, I, think we can, I think we can polish it more, but, um, but yeah, we got to keep pressing on it. And that entail would then solve poverty because you're creating the jobs. Correct. And we're all focused on one single problem yes. that we could all, it's something tangible that we could all roll up our sleeves and get behind. Yes, exactly. I've had so many conversations with, I mean, all of them. Yeah. about at least putting in some policy in yeah. there. Uh, you know, California alone with the wildfire situation, we, we lost 60 homes in this area. Yeah. There's only 600 homes in this area. We lost 10% of our homes. Yeah. 
and there's no incentive to rebuild green. So that was one of the policy suggestions I made was how do we come up with an incentive that people, that we're taking, if we're rebuilding homes, rebuild them so they're off the grid. Yes. Yes. Every time a natural disaster takes a home away from a family, rebuild it so it's off the grid. Well, let's talk about how you could stimulate that. I think that's a great idea. Imagine marrying that with the idea of a green earned income tax credit, where instead of giving money to business owners when they create green jobs, give money directly to the employees who work at green companies. Right. So in the case of construction, you could say for all workers who are building homes that are green off the grid, we'll give you a couple thousand dollars in the green EITC or the green cash bonus. Not incentives to the business owners and hope those incentives make their way down to the workers, but directly to workers themselves. Right. And so then imagine if you're a worker looking for a construction job, you can apply for a construction job at a company where you could get the green bonus. Yeah. Or you could apply for a construction job at a company where you don't get the green bonus. Would it be similar to what the state did with the smog checks? Yeah, that's a good analogy. If we use that as like a basis of like, if you're driving a car that is polluting the planet to such an extent where you're either going to be fined or you have to get a new car. I mean, we have to. Correct. I just, how many, how do you, how many homes do you think we've lost in the last 10 years to natural disasters? Oh, God. I mean, B- besides so just many. entire communities yeah, yeah, being yeah. wiped out, right? Entire communities that could be, if we had some sort of foresight, that rebuilt green, what would, what would we be able to chip away from? The pollution and and what's happening right now. Not to mention, think about the tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money that have gone to rebuild things that could have not have uh, needed to be yes. rebuilt in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So this is my point with the Green New Deal. If there was were actual tangible things that people could go, oh, I understand that policy. I could get behind that policy. Yeah. And oh, so natural disasters are happening because of global warming or climate change. How do we fix that? Well, when we rebuild these communities, the entire communities that are being wiped out, we are going to rebuild those communities green and take them off the yeah. grid. Well, I think this speaks to the need that we have a broader coalition of messengers. There's two areas where a broader coalition of messengers would really help. One is the Green New Deal. The other is Medicare for All. In both cases, we have compelling messengers that make the moral argument. But the way to build popular support is to marry the moral argument with the it works argument. Yes. On Medicare for All, which is an issue I've been speaking out a lot about, clearly Medicare for All has the moral benefit of providing health care for everyone. And we have so many great moral voices in Congress. In addition, we need to make the case that I've been trying to make using my credibility as an entrepreneur that Medicare for all would also be great for our economy. When businesses are responsible for providing health insurance for people, we put our businesses at a competitive disadvantage when they're operating in a global marketplace. When our businesses are competing against businesses in Britain or Europe or China, where those governments pay for health insurance, which means those businesses don't, our American companies are disadvantaged. 
Also, think about the number of people who haven't started small businesses because of fear that they will leave behind their health insurance at their employer. Think also about the number of people who don't go to their boss to ask for a raise because are you going to risk agitating your boss if your boss controls whether you can take your kid to the doctor? So if we had a Medicare for All system where government provided health insurance, you'd advantage our companies competing globally. You'd allow a lot of people to start small businesses for not having to worry about their health care. And I think you would see rate wages rising because so many people would now feel empowered to go to their boss and ask for a raise without worrying about whether their boss is going to take away their health care. And so that's an example of how if we married those arguments, which are how it works well, with the argument of everyone ought to have health insurance, then you can win a broader coalition. Is there a country that's doing everything better than we are that you can look at and say, we need to look at this like? No. No. That's the, 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 the intellectually honest answer is, is no. We have a unique set of challenges and um, we fall so short of our potential. But to say that this other country does it so it's transferable to how we do it, is that because our potential is so much greater? It's partly that, but it's also partly because our country is just, it's unique. We have an amount of um, population that's unique. We have a political system that's unique. We have a diversity across a lot of factors that are unique. And so it's convenient on social media to say, well, if this country can do it, so can we. I think we can do all the things we need to do, but there's not a simple analogy of do it like this country. So if I were to break it down issue by issue, is there an analogy? Like healthcare. More so, yeah. Healthcare. Yeah, more so. Yeah, I think the way that Canada administers the healthcare is a great model for us to emulate. And how about shared wealth? I don't think anyone's really gotten it quite right on shared wealth with an economy as diverse as ours. So I think we're going to need to blaze trails. This question of big monopolies concentrating power and leaving workers with very little negotiating leverage is something that's happening across the globe. How about prison reform? Well, I think every country in the developed world does a hell of a lot better on, on criminal justice than we do. Obviously, the developing world is a different situation, but continental Europe and Britain and Japan and Australia, I mean, all those countries are doing, you know, miles better than we are in criminal justice. Our criminal justice system is an embarrassment. Education? Well, I think um, there are bits and pieces that we could take from other markets around the world. Um, but I don't think any other markets around the world have resolved this fundamental question of how you evolve education to match an information economy and an information calendar instead of an, instead of an agrarian calendar. You know, still in most places around the world, there's this idea of a school year and then months off, right? Consider the embedded misogyny in that because those months off from school assume that there is one person to take care of those kids, right? It assumes that people have the work flexibility and that are provided the daycare so they can accommodate for months off. So I think what we need to do is reimagine how we think of education in relation to the changing nature of work. That's so interesting. I never thought about that. I never thought about that. The education system is suited for an economy where you have um, one person who stays at home, one person who works, and, um, and a decent amount of savings. That's not our economy. And so our, our educational system is inherently regressive. 
for people who have middle income uh, means and, and more, it works okay that their kids are off during the summer. But for people who are in those eight out of 10 Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck, that your kids are off for a couple of months is, is, is a hardship. I'm so glad to have met you. Oh, thanks. Likewise. Because I, I mean, this is basically the reason why I started this podcast is to have these kinds of conversations oh, with people that like would normally not cross my path. The American dream can only exist if it's attainable. Everyone should have access to the riches in our land. Without this access, without a universal path to wealth and security, this dream is nothing but a myth for most of those who live here. Ugh, I'm so sick of it. So often those on the right claim that people need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps as they argue against public assistance programs that help people achieve some financial stability. It's such a toxic, evil argument. These misguided statements not only imply that the poor are poor because they're lazy, they also serve to keep people poor by eliminating maybe the only pathway out of poverty many people will ever have. The bootstraps argument only works if we make sure people have boots. And right now, conservatives are not only taking away boots, they are making sure boot stores move out of poor neighborhoods. And the wealthiest are hoarding nearly all the boots in America for themselves. Right now, wealth is concentrated in the smallest number of Americans since the Great Depression. I'm going to repeat that again. Listen very carefully. Right now, wealth is concentrated in the smallest number of Americans since the Great Depression. This inequality, this injustice, is perhaps the greatest problem facing our country. According to a recent report from the Institute of Policy Studies, the 400 wealthiest Americans hold more wealth than all of the black households and one quarter of the Latinx households in America combined. Think about that. The 400 greatest beneficiaries of Trump's tax cuts hold more wealth than millions and millions of Americans. And they hold it, obviously, at the expense of minority groups. It upsets me. Ending poverty and ending the ability of so few to have so much is the solution to most of the problems that America faces From failing communities where wage bases are too low to support basic services to healthcare, education, and so much more, distribution of wealth matters. Now, I could already hear uh, fucking Tucker Carlson and other right-wing trolls screaming, Alyssa Milano wants to redistribute wealth. That's socialism. And then they just run and hide in their safe spaces. Well, slow down there, snowflakes. In order to redistribute wealth, you actually have to distribute it in the first place. And that's exactly what we need to do. That is how we make America great. The famous Greek historian Plutarch said, An imbalance between rich and poor is the oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics. This has been borne out over and over throughout human history. And it's endangering our nation. Ending poverty is an act of patriotism. So Republicans in government, I have a message for you. Pull your nation up by its bootstraps 
and live the patriotism you insist you have. It's time to do something meaningful and permanent about poverty. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.